together today as your church. We do seek to glorify your name as you grow your kingdom. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for calling us together as a congregation that we might together express your love to the world around us. And so today as we open your word again, speak to us, we pray, challenge us with words that were written all those years ago but are empowered by your spirit to speak to your church today that we might be more like Christ in all that we think, say and do. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wonder how many people here have um, a current curriculum vitae, a CV, a kind of a summary of, uh, of life experience. Just give me a bit of a wave if you do. Fantastic. I was having a look at mine just recently. I realised when I... Uh, <laughs> this is like true confessions. Uh, when I sent my CV to the search committee here in Wodonga, there are a couple of omissions in terms of employment history. They weren't particularly serious ones, like they weren't full-time kind of paid employment. They were the sort of things you sort of just do to help someone else out or to, uh, to make ends meet. For example, there was one occasion a few years ago when I was called up, we were at Bible College at the time and uh, struggling to kind of pay the bills and a fellow rang up and said, are you interested in doing some supermarket cleaning? And I was interested in doing anything as long as it paid money. Uh, and so I got involved for a little while cleaning a, a supermarket, a Bilo supermarket there in Chernside Park in Melbourne. Now the way this kind of worked was rather interesting because you had to do it before any of the customers turned up or any of the staff turned up. And so we had to start working very, very early in the morning. Now I don't have a problem with very, very early in the morning. Some people do. There's two kinds of people in the world, aren't there? Early morning people, late night people. I'm one of the former, not one of the latter. And so I turned up very early in the morning and there was a grumpy kind of a guy that I was working with who told me, your job is basically just to take the scissor broom through, go and sweep up the floor and then mop the whole supermarket at four o'clock in the morning or something like that. And so that's what I would do. And four o'clock would go and five o'clock would come and then six o'clock would come and opening time was around about eight in the morning or something like that. But around about 6.30, you know, you're starting to feel just a little bit peckish. And you're mopping up and down the rows and, of course, one of the rows that you've got to go past <laughs> is the confectionery row. And if it's not the confectionery row, it's the row where the breads and the cakes are or it's where the biscuits are or it's where just about anything looks good at 6.30 in the morning when you're hungry and you've been working for a few hours. And you know, in that supermarket, there were no security cameras. There were no other people. There was no way that uh, anyone could possibly have known if I helped myself to a Kit Kat or a packet of TikTok biscuits or something like that. And you're wondering whether I did or not. <laughs> but before I answer your question... My question to you is, what would you have done in that circumstance? And I can stand here before you today. Actually, someone asked me this question through the week. Are all the stories that you tell true? <laughs> 
And the answer to that question is yes, and you know why that is the case. It's because I have to stand before God and give an account for everything I say. And I can stand here before you today and say that in those weeks when I was mopping that supermarket and looking longingly at those, uh, that food stuff, I did not once touch any of them because, as a Christian, I had some integrity in my, uh, in my walk before the Lord, which meant that I would not do that. Perhaps others might have had a different view. But each of us are faced with these kinds of dilemmas, aren't we, from time to time? How to act or how to respond in the face of temptation or testing or trial or whatever it might be. And one of the, uh, the questions that uh, we're going to look at this morning as we come back to the passage that we're walking our way through from 1 Peter is what is the foundation for these kind of ethical decisions that we make? Are they just shaped by the world that we live in? We do this because everybody else does that. Are they shaped because we're worried about community censure or whatever it might be or is there something deeper? And as we come to 1 Peter, one of the things that Peter says to a church that's wrestling with how do I relate to the world around me in difficult times is there is actually something deeper, something that roots you far deeper than a community expectation or, or, or something that everyone else would do. It's actually the life of Christ in you. It's the holiness of God that motivates us to act in certain ways. And that's where we're going to go with our passage this morning from uh, 1 Peter. We come back to this study uh, this morning after having uh, introduced it last week. I'll uh, cover a little bit of that in uh, a moment. But what Peter wants to say to us in a nutshell today is that Christian ethics, Christian decisions to walk with integrity are not just grounded on what's uh, generally considered acceptable to the world around us, nor are they born out of our inherent goodness because the truth is if, if we were prepared to stand in front of a, a mirror that could say what we were really like, we would be embarrassed, wouldn't we? Because we know deep down inside there's sin in our hearts. Peter actually says these things come out of the character and love of God as we submit ourselves to Christ. So let's have a look at the passage. If you've got uh, your Bible there, we're going to walk our way through this passage this morning. It's 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through to chapter 2, verse 3. And uh, take notice of some of the words. We'll, uh, we'll come back and work our way through this passage uh, with some reflections and applications this morning. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 13, Peter starts, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he is holy, uh, sorry, just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because... I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, sorry, I'm behind with this on the screen. Let's see if we can get the next one. Thank you. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. 
Through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him and so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you've purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for one another, love one another deeply from the hearts. For you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy and slander of every kind, like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Well, as uh, occasionally happens, the passage this morning that we're looking at starts with the word therefore and one of the questions that I put to you whenever you're reading a passage that starts with the word therefore, that question that you ask is, what is it there for? And if we do take a moment to back up into the passage that we looked at last week, Peter started this letter of advice to Christians who were living in difficult times with some advice and that, that advice or that encouragement was that salvation is ours, we have a living hope. And it was pleasing and thank you Royce for choosing that song that we sang just before that articulated this living hope that we have, this hope that we hold on to. And Peter wanted to ground the, uh, the churches that he was writing to in the northern Turkey area, where you would find them today if they were still there, he wanted to ground them in this living hope that we have in Christ Jesus, this living hope which is actually grounded in the historical reality of Christ. Just yesterday... Our, our young adults are participating in the Relay for Life. I have to tell you, just a word of advice, it's easier to ride my bike 150 kilometres than it is to walk 20 kilometres. My legs are so sore today. <laughs> but everywhere I went as I was walking around and around and around in circles, and there's another thing, um, <laughs> there were people with shirts on uh, which said, Hope lives here. And a big sign on the scoreboard around the oval, hope. And there's a great encouragement in that context and what an encouragement it is for those who are wrestling with cancer of all sorts, you know, to hold fast to hope. And the whole deal with with that uh, uh, fundraising exercise is to try and find cures for this terrible disease, cancer, and raise hope for those who sometimes might lose hope. But it's still a hope that is held on to very kind of, uh, what's the right word, loosely if you like, although in that moment people will grab that hope, but that hope is not certain. We don't know for sure what's going to happen in those kind of contexts. And there were many there yesterday who, uh, who were there as carers or supporters of those who'd passed away where hope had failed. We have a living hope, Peter says, a hope that is certain, a hope that is secure. I had the opportunity years ago to talk to the brother of a colleague of mine who had been lost at sea for 35 days. He was a big guy, he came from the North Solomons, 
the, uh, the, what we know as Bougainville, I kind of reluctant to use the word Bougainville because our young adults just fall about laughing. You know, they think of Bogans who live in Bogan. But that's the North Solomon. This big guy, he and two friends had set out from their island to go to another island in one of the dinghies and partway across the motor had given up and they'd been caught in the currents and they were adrift 35 days. And he told this story, he started off, he was a big man, probably 120 kilo kind of size. He lost an enormous amount of weight. And over those 35 days or so, they caught whatever rainwater they could to drink and the coconuts floating by, they would grab them and eat the crabs raw off the coconuts to stay alive and hoped that we would find an island sometime, hoped that eventually we would actually be rescued. Well, there was no one looking for them, they had no idea where they were. And they eventually were washed up. But it was a hope that, uh, that could easily have gone the other way. But in this passage, uh, Peter says, this hope that we have is a living hope. This is something I will say from time to time and continue to reinforce this. It's a hope grounded in the actual historical reality of the resurrection of Christ. It's not a fairy story. It's not a legend, it's not some kind of stuff in this book that has been made up. It is grounded in what happened in history. And so it's a hope that we can say is absolutely secure, a hope that is totally secure, a hope that is not one that we kind of are anxious that might never be realised. It's a hope that uh, is absolutely uh, held fast by God's. And then, in light of this hope that Peter speaks about, he speaks about uh, some behaviours that should characterise those who hold on to hope. And I love the first statement here where Peter says, uh, prepare your minds for action. I'm a bit of a fan of this statement. It's been highlighted in my Bible for years because uh, on occasions I've heard people say, you know, you have to check your brain in at the door when you come into the church, right? You've got to set aside the, the grey matter when you come in and become a Christian. Christians kind of just accept all this stuff on faith. You don't have to think. That is not true. In fact, nothing could be further from the truth because God at all levels asked us to engage our rational minds. He engages with our emotions. He engages us experientially, but he engages us with our thinking as well. And so, brothers and sisters, let me say to you, you need to engage your minds as well. And it's a great encouragement here. In fact, in the old, uh, in the old uh, King James Version, it actually phrases this really nicely in the King James Version. It says, gird up the loins of your mind. You like that imagery? I'm pretty sure if I went out to kids' church and I said, hey, the Bible says to gird up your loins, they would look at me and go, what? And in fact, to be fair to, to kids' church, you know, if... Someone years ago had said to me, what do you know about loins? I say, I really like them, they're nice chops. <laughs> loin chops, they're amongst my favourites. But in the ancient Near East, of course, a man would wear long flowing robes and, and, the, and, and those would hang down around his legs. If you're going to run, you would need to gird them up and tuck them into the loin, into your belt, so that you could move unencumbered. And the imagery is really beautiful, isn't it? If you're going to be active in grasping this hope that uh, Christ has given to us, you've got to engage your mind, gird up the loins, you might get ready for action. In the message translation, the paraphrase some of you might be familiar with, 
um, it, it uses a modern metaphor. It says, roll up the sleeves of your mind. That makes more sense to us, doesn't it? Because we don't have loins to be girded, but you most certainly can roll up your sleeves. This is what the message says, roll up your sleeves, put your mind into gear, be totally ready to receive the gift that's coming when Jesus arrives. I like that idea of rolling up your sleeves, putting your mind into gear, but I just think that uh, the, uh, the paraphrase misses the imperative of the next statement when it says, be totally ready to receive the gift that's coming when Jesus arrives. The, the real, uh, well, not sorry, the real, the original language is much more forceful than that. It's not about just kind of being ready, it's about actively taking that hope. It loses some of the force of the imperative. What we are to do is to set our hope on the grace to be brought to us when Jesus is revealed at his coming. What Peter is calling the church to, and by implication us to, is a decisive action. It's something that we are to do, get our minds into gear to grasp this hope, grab hold of this hope, be active in taking on this hope. It's a decisive, determined action. We, uh, as some of you know, we used to have a, a golden retriever. He was a whole lot of fun. And, uh, but on the scale of, uh, of, of brains, I'm not quite sure where he fitted. He was, he was pretty smart, but he was not the sharpest tool in the shed. And uh, for a season in, in the church, we were receiving bread from Baker's Delight. Oh, no, not Baker's Delight one of the bakeries anyway, that we were distributing through a ministry. By the end of the week, there were often a few loaves of bread left. And so I would take them home and feed the chooks, free chook food. And, uh, and the dog, he thought this was fantastic because he was pretty skinny, I kept him lean, and every now and again I'd throw him a morsel, a hunk of bread, a dog after my own heart. As I love a bit of fresh bread, although oftentimes it was sourdough and I have no idea who invented sourdough, and I have no idea why. But anyway, um, this is what would happen. I would go out with a box or a bag of bread to the chook house, there's a heap of chooks out there, and start throwing a few to the chooks, and the dog would be there at the gate. It was awkward for him because the door to the chook house and where he could get to is roughly kind of in the same line, so he'd be pressing against the fence trying to see, am I going to get any, am I going to get any? And then I'd grab a bit and I'd go over to the fence, and this is what would happen. You could walk the whole length of the fence and he would walk without taking his, his eyes, just a bit mindful of the stairs, he would not take his eyes off that bread. You could take it up and take it down and across to the side. And, and then if you threw it, he would be launch himself to grab that bread. And, uh, and that's the kind of fixation that the imperative of this passage is calling us to be, uh, to, to hold, to, to take on board. Get your eyes on this hope. Fix yourselves on this hope. Hold fast to this hope. We know that there are some things that we hope for that may or may not come to fruition, but Peter says in terms of this living hope, we can bank on it. We can put, uh, put to the farm on it, if you like. We should fix our eyes on it. What does that mean? Well, in practice, that means... Uh, allowing it to shape our worldview, to determine how we think, to fix our hope fully on the grace to be given to us when Jesus Christ is revealed. 
means allowing our minds to be focused on that, occupying our thoughts with that, putting our energy and our focus around that shape our decision-making, shape the way that we prosecute our relationships with other people. It's easy, isn't it, to fix our hope on all sorts of other stuff. The world comes before us and says, fix your hope on this, fix your hope on that, fix your hope on your superannuation, on your property, on your relationships, on your husband, your girlfriend, whatever it might be. Subtle temptations and it takes an effort of the will to take the focus off those things and uh, fix our hope on Christ, which is why Peter said, prepare your minds for action, get your your, uh, brain into gear. And Christian hope that is fixed on God needs to actively take control of where the thoughts go because if we're not engaged in the process of holding fast to hope, thinking about hope, talking about hope, our minds will get onto lesser things all too easily. Well, through the balance of the passage, Peter mixes together a series of ethical instructions with theological reflections and I talked about how, uh, last week, we talked about how behaviour and belief is married together in what Peter says here in this passage. In verse 14, as obedient children do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. And he says, but just as he who is holy... Uh, who has called you to be holy, so be holy in all you do. Verse 17, live out your time in reverent fear. Verse 22, I've got these listed here for you. Love one another deeply from the hearts. And then at the start of chapter 2 in verse 1, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy and slander of every kind. On every occasion where Peter actually says, here's something for you to live out, it's linked to a belief Why be holy? Well, because God is holy. Why live out our time as foreigners in reverent fear? Well, because we have a Father who judges each person's work impartially. Love one another deeply from the heart. Why? Well, because we've been born again. We have a new life. Rid yourselves of malice and deceit, hypocrisy and envy and slander because the word of the Lord endures forever. And there's some risks very significant risks associated with um, summarising this passage in the manner that I have because uh, for some it starts to sound like a checkbox of things we have to do, doesn't it? You know, you want to be holy, you've got to tick this box, you've got to tick that box, you've got to tick that box and tick this box and if we keep on reading there's a whole pile more boxes we might have to tick. The question is how can we be holy and the answer incorrectly if it's misunderstood is to actually do these things. But that would actually be a misunderstanding of what Peter is saying and more broadly what the scripture teaches. What this passage teaches us and what the scripture teaches us and this is absolutely fundamental to our faith as Christians is that if we are to be holy we need to repattern our lives on God's holiness. We are to be imitators of God as beloved children, holy as he is holy, perfect as he is perfect. Holy living and the pattern of holy living can never be reduced to a checkbox list of things to do for us to be acceptable to God. That's what religion does. Religion always reduces uh, holiness to a list of things we have to do, things that we need to do, uh, what we might call KPIs, 
key performance indicators. You know, if we're going to be acceptable to God, these are the things that we will do. Religion reduces a relationship to God to a, th- a list of laws and regulations. And there's another reason, as I've said before, if anyone ever asks me, uh, are you a religious person? I say, no. No, I'm not. Religion at its core, of course, is the search for God. And guess what, everyone? God's already found us. And I don't have to slave away ticking boxes to make myself acceptable to God. That's what grace is for. So how are we to live? Well, we have to remember that God's righteous deeds flow from his holy nature and so holiness patterned on God. Please make sure you grab this this morning, if nothing else. Holiness patterned on God needs to flow from a heart that has been transformed by God. Patterning ourselves on the holiness of God, it would seem, is an almost impossible standard but there is on the other hand a marvellous simplicity in this holiness patterned on God himself it's a holiness that does not require an endless list of directives or prohibitions it flows from the heart and its key is love you might remember this is resonating for some possibly uh, a passage where a teacher came to Jesus and asked the question, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And uh, uh, Jesus said, well, what's written in the law? And the guy said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, love your neighbour as yourself. And Jesus said, you've answered correctly. Do these things and you will live. To be holy is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and to love your neighbour as yourself. We imitate the love of grace that saved us, the love of God's compassion that's been poured into our hearts by his Holy Spirit. That's what makes us perfect as our Heavenly Father in heaven is perfect. A couple of weeks ago we spoke about being perfect in the evening service And uh, it was a helpful thing to be reminded that uh, sometimes we Westerners think about perfection the wrong way. I have a hammer here on the stage. It's it's my favourite hammer. It's an east wing hammer for those of you who know anything about um, building tools and whatnot. Um, It's a little bit shabby now because I lost it for over a year. I bought it um, with some money I was given after speaking at a camp at one stage and so it had a kind of a sentimental connection and um, I lost it. And for a whole year I blamed my son. (laughs) Who said that's fair? (laughs) I'm going to have to go on the record and say actually it probably wasn't fair because... My son, uh, bless his heart, was always pretty good with my tools. He would use a saw and put the saw back, don't leave it out in the rain. Some of you are shaking your head and saying, I wish I had a son like that. (laughs) But Josh, generally speaking, looked after my tools, but for one whole year I thought, that guy, he has left that hammer somewhere on the block, it'll be in the long grass someplace, until one day I climbed up on the roof, which was where I'd been working a year before, and what do you know? (laughs) There was the hammer. And as a consequence of this leather handle being out in the weather for a whole year, it has deteriorated. But do you know what? This hammer works just as well as it did when I bought it. 
The Western concept of perfect is something that is unblemished, something that is without flaw or fault. The Eastern concept, I probably shouldn't be waving a hammer at you, should I? Um, <laughs> the Eastern concept, the concept of the ancient Near East, the New Testament concept, is something is perfect when it's fulfilling its intended purpose. You see the difference between those two things? If, if I said perfection is in an unblemished state, this hammer is not perfect. If I said this hammer is perfect in that it fulfills its intended purpose, it's perfect. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. It's not a call for us to be totally without blemish, without fault or flaw. It's a call to us to fulfill the purpose that God has called us to fulfill and we can only do that in Christ. And so this call to holiness reflecting the heart of Christ is, uh, is a call to fulfill our purpose that God has called us to fulfill. As we do that, we are holy. Our hearts are transformed. Let's come back to the passages for a moment before we finish. At our leadership team meeting on Wednesday night, we took some time to share with one another on the topic of what uh, we've been learning, what God has been saying to us recently. And, and I have to say, one of the passages that I've been reflecting on a bit recently is... Uh, this verse 22 it's a challenging problematic verse it says now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers love one another deeply from the hearts i don't know about you but i find that um that's uh, that kind of pushes me a little bit love one another deeply from the hearts in John chapter 13, verse 34, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now remember that Peter was writing to a church that was trying to figure out how to live in a challenging social environment. They were a church trying to figure out what it meant to live before God with clear consciences, to live with integrity in the community. What does it mean to strive to please God in whatever they did? And uh, another question that they were asking was this one, how do we witness effectively to the gospel in this world? Questions that we ask, aren't they? Or at least should be asking. It's the same assignment that we have and to be honest, working out how to witness in our community uh, when the community is less and less interested in the things of faith is actually a challenge. But as the early church discovered, one of the most potent forms of witnessing to a world around that was by and large antagonistic to the gospel was not by running around with placards or by uh, protesting the latest social injustice or whatever it might be. It was actually done by loving one another in community and loving the unlovable. I was chatting to another pastor this week and we were talking through these things and as I've said to you before, one of the questions that we're facing is how do we as a church engage in our community? It's starting to look a lot, isn't it, like the early church times? And that's not such a bad thing. And he said, how so? And I said, because I think it's actually going to call us back to living in relationship in the manner of the early church. We're going to have to change the way we do things and key amongst the things that we are going to need to express is love for one another. 
And this passage is challenging because it doesn't just say love one another and leave it at that. Peter says love one another deeply, intensely. In fact, the Greek word actually says love one another in love that stretches. You're familiar with John 3.16? For God so loved the world. It's exactly the same word in the Greek. It's love that stretched out the arms of Christ on the cross. It's love that we are to have for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And by your love, the scripture says, they will know who you are. They will know who it is that you worship. And what a tragedy it is. So often people come in through the doors of the church and they hear people bickering about stuff or belittling other people or behaving in a manner that is hardly, uh, hardly go- uh, godly or holy and they look at this and say, why would I even want to be part of this? That's no different to the bowling club or the footy club or whatever it is. And so I stand here this morning and say I find this one of the most challenging pieces of the scripture that we're looking at today. How do we do this? Love one another deeply. How do we do this? Love one another with intensity from the heart. Because the Christian call to love others is not a call to tolerate one another. It's not about coming into the church and and greeting that person saying, hi, how are you going? It's nice to see you. I really can't stand you, but I have to love you. That's not what it's about. Not an easy question to answer, is it? What does it actually look like? It's a call to love with intensity and with purpose, without pretense, without hypocrisy. Sincerity isn't enough. But here's the thing. Unpleasant that this message is. Love without conditions is actually a mark of true holiness. And if love without conditions is not expressed in an individual or more broadly in the body of Christ, then we have to ask the question... Have we truly experienced a transformed heart? That's the bottom line, isn't it? That's where the rubber really hits the road. If we as an individual uh, do not express love in this way, have we experienced the love of God in the manner that God wants us to? If we as a church do not express that love, in a manner that reflects what Peter is saying here, have we truly experienced a transformation in our life together as a community? And there's the challenge for us today as we reflect on this passage. There are many other things that we could pull out of this passage. Verse 20, for example, it speaks about how Christ was chosen before the creation of the world, but it was revealed in these last days for your sake. What a great promise that is. This this whole calling of Christ what Jesus has done has been done for our sake so that we might express his love there's so much there so much that's been revealed so much that challenges us I'm going to leave it at that point this morning but invite you to respond in prayer today and so uh, as we wrap up this time invite you just to uh, keep your eyes open for a moment and have a look at the people that you are sitting with Who is it on your left? Who is it on your right? Who are you behind? You might not know any of the people that you're with. But the challenge that God puts before us is to express that love to those people in a manner that is befitting those who have been called by God. 
We're going to pray in a few moments and I'll invite you to pray with me and pray for those who you are with, those who you are sitting amongst, those who you are connected to. Some of you every week sit in much than all the same spot, which is okay. I made a terrible error once of saying to the church, you know, mix it up. And they did. And then I didn't know where anyone was. <laughs> you, know, you kind of get familiar with where people sit. <laughs> but here's the challenge. You know, it's easy to build ourselves little cocoons, isn't it, of comfort around us. You know, the people we're okay with, the people we relate to, the people we'll make a beeline to after the service because they're our friends. But the challenge of the passage is multifaceted, but let's focus just on one, to love as Christ loved us. Love that stretches, love that doesn't know boundaries, love that is intense. We're going to pray for one another. You might not know who it is that you are beside. In a moment we'll have some space uh, to pray for those people. Not out loud, we'll just uh, keep it, uh, it non-threatening. But pray intentionally for those, expressing our love to those around us. After the service there's an opportunity to express your love by greeting one another, by spending time talking with one another, to reflect on what we've talked about here. After the service, there's an opportunity, as it always is in the context of our service, to uh, take time to pray with others. Because if, uh, like me, you find this challenging, sometimes asking others to pray into that situation might be quite helpful. And there's folks who will be available to do that after our service as well. Let me encourage you to take advantage of that and let God speak into that space. Let's close our eyes. Uh, let's pray and let's uh, ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us as uh, we reflect on the word this morning as we pray for those around us, as we think about what it means to love without measure, love with intensity. Gracious God, we thank you again for the word that you've given to us again today. Lord, we thank you that sown throughout the context of our worship this morning have been reminders that we have a living hope, a living hope grounded in the reality of Jesus Christ, the resurrected Saviour. Lord, we thank you for the challenges that there are in this passage too. Not to conform to the evil desires that we may have had when we lived in ignorance, but to walk in your ways, to live out our time in reverent fear, to love one another deeply from the heart, to rid ourselves of malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander of every kind. And Lord, it's easy to kind of wrap all those things together. It's hard to live them. But we believe that we can as we allow our hearts to be transformed by you. And so, Father, we sit here this morning exposed in a way before a holy God. And we pray first for ourselves. Lord, do a work in our heart where there has been hardness do a work in our hearts where there's been resistance to you. Do a work in our hearts where we've held on to pride or arrogance. Do a work in our hearts where there's been hurt that we have not uh, allowed to heal. Do a work in our hearts where we've held you at arm's length, where we have resisted the work of your Holy Spirit in us, where we have tried to maintain control, where we have refused the intimacy of relationship with you and Lord we pray for those that we are here together with today we pray for those on our right and on our left 
and we ask that your will might be done in their lives, that they might reach their fullest potential in Christ, that they might know you and love you and experience you in the most wonderful way, that their journey of faith this week might be characterised by an ongoing daily personal experience of your spirit with them. We pray for their life in their family, whatever that might look like. We pray for their life in their workplace, their vocation, their study, their retirement, whatever that might look like. Uh, We ask, Lord, that they might know uh, your purpose and vision for them. And we pray that for ourselves and for others, we together might be able to express the love of Christ in ways that will demonstrate to our world your love. Because we recognise, Lord, that words ain't going to cut it anymore because people are not listening. But actions, actions will always have an impact. And so, Father, where there is healing necessary in our own lives or in our own relationships, whether they be expressed here or elsewhere, help us to have the courage to go with the power of Christ to seek healing. Where there needs to be forgiveness, experience and offer forgiveness. Where we need to be humble, help us to be humble. Where we need to uh, acknowledge that we have been wrong, help us to do that, Lord, and grow us through it. Lord, again, we thank you that your Holy Spirit empowers us to do these things. We don't have to do them on our own. We thank you, Lord, for the freedom there is in Christ. We thank you that you have released us from the bonds of religion, the slavery of the law, and have granted to us new life. Help us to live in it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.